This program is made possible by members and donors, so a huge thanks to everyone who contributes on Patreon to support the show. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the history of and renewed call for reparations for slavery, Jim Crow, and beyond that is infusing the 2020 Democratic primary campaign. Clips today come from Backstory, Pod Save the People, Tiny Spark, Past Present, The Benjamin Dixon Show, and This Is Hell. I think the entire trajectory of how racial economic inequality has evolved in the United States would have been completely altered had the initial land allocation been made to the formerly enslaved. This is William Darity. He's an expert on the racial wealth gap, and he's studied wealth inequality for decades. Here, he's talking about a policy from 1865 known as 40 acres and a mule. My suspicion is that we would not have this conversation or need the conversation about reparations at all had the uh, initial order been implemented. Before the end of the Civil War, General William Sherman issued an order that promised ex-slaves a large swath of coastal land that ran from northern Florida all the way up into South Carolina. Each family would be given up to 40 acres to farm and build a new prosperous life. This designation was made and actually executed up to the point where upwards of, I believe, 4,000 slave families were settled on the lands, but the lands were subsequently taken from them and returned to the slaveholders or the former slaveholders by Andrew Johnson. This uh, shaped the foundations for racial wealth inequality in the United States, a foundation that is experienced today in a quite dramatic fashion. Perhaps it's the most extreme expression of economic inequality between blacks and whites in the United States of any other measure that's available to us. Can you share with us your knowledge about what happened to some of these uh, formerly enslaved people that had their land stripped from them? It could have had implications not only for opportunities to engage in farming, but also other kinds of uh, possibilities at a future point, including real estate development, including the prospect of establishing rental properties for retail activity. Some of the, the land that was initially allocated to the formerly enslaved on the islands along the uh, the coast of South Carolina and Georgia has become some of the most treasured recreational properties in the United States today. Right. Uh, Hilton Head Island and the like. Yeah, we would have had a very different kind of, uh, of potential for black economic development had, had the 40 acres actually been delivered. And what we had instead was wealth deprivation. Yet, in spite of all the barriers and they ranged from lynching to just terror. African Americans were able to acquire land of their own. Could you give us a sense of the, the scope, the number of African Americans, how much land they owned, and what some of the barriers they faced were? In the aftermath of the Reconstruction era, 
the uh, formerly enslaved community in the South managed to acquire upwards of 15 million acres of land by dint of their own effort and actually their high levels of motivation. Um, that 15 million acres of land was black-owned property at the start of the 20, 20th century. Hmm. Um, in the course of the first 60 to 70 years of the 20th century, that land was seized, appropriated, uh, owners were driven off of the land, and as you mentioned in some instances, the owners were lynched as a mechanism for taking over their property. And so by the time we get into the 1980s, the best estimate is about one million acres of southern land was still in the hands of black Americans. So this was a dramatic change, and it was a dramatic change that was associated with a essentially a white terror campaign for the purposes of wealth stripping of the property that was held by blacks. Let me ask about the biggest myth about reparations. What would that be? So I'm thinking about myths here in the sense of uh, arguments against. One of the statements that's frequently made is that there are no living victims, so this is not something that should be, should be bothered with at all. It's absolutely true. There are no direct living victims of, of enslavement in the United States. However, uh, the case for reparations is not predicated exclusively on slavery. And I, I really recoil when people sometimes talk about slavery reparations. The motivation for a reparations program is actually three tiers or phases of injustice uh, and their cumulative consequences to the present moment. So the first phase is slavery itself, but then we have to take into account the Jim Crow period as well and also ongoing racism and discrimination in the United States. And all of those are things that have to be uh, part of the compensation package. Well, you're certainly aware that a number of Democratic candidates for president who are running are talking about reparations. Does this give you hope? Are there any specific plans that you think would make a good start in carrying out reparations? I think that we're actually at a rather remarkable moment. Perhaps uh, this is the first moment since the Reconstruction era where major political candidates are even uttering the term reparations or having to respond to questions about what their position is on reparations. So there's one candidate who has actually talked about a numerical value, and that is Marianne Williamson. Initially, she talked about a uh, restitution that would amount to about $100 billion, and I think I immediately complained that that sum was paltry in terms of the best estimates I've seen of what the compensation should be. Uh, she's adjusted to say it should be between 200 to $500 billion. I'm absolutely convinced that your minimum range estimates have to be in the trillions of dollars. But she is the only one I'm aware of who's actually talked about an amount. There are several candidates who have said that they are in support of the formation of a commission to study reparations and to develop a program of restitution. 
And I think I'm personally very pleased with that. That that seems like a critical step because I think it's essential as a prelude to the development of a full reparations program. Uh, so to the extent that there are political candidates who are saying that they're in favor of that step, I think that this is a far more positive moment than any other I've seen in my lifetime. For my news, I'm talking about an important piece that was written last week in the New York Times by Dr. Tara Hunter, who's a professor of history and African-American studies at Princeton University. So here in the D.C. area last week, we were celebrating the District of Columbia Emancipation Act, which celebrates how on April 16th, 1862, Abraham Lincoln signed a bill that emancipated enslaved people in the District of Columbia. Woohoo. That's great. It's lit. It's amazing. The act is notable uh, because it was the first time that the federal government authorized the abolition of slavery, which hastened its demise in Virginia and Maryland uh, as runaways and, and folks of color often fled to Washington in order to be free. The thing about this is that what some people tend to forget about the measure is that uh, to ease slave owners' pain, the act paid those loyal to the union who were willing to emancipate their slaves $300 for every enslaved person they freed. Another way of putting this is that slave owners in D.C. receive reparations, while the emancipated enslaved people, the people who, to be clear, built the homes, plowed the land, planted the crops, and who built the wealth, receive nothing. And this is largely because Abraham Lincoln, in the midst of the Civil War, was anxious about preserving the alliance with slaveholders who were still loyal to the Union. And so what became clear to Lincoln is that for him, the only way to persuade slave owners to release their slaves uh, and keep them loyal to the Union was to compensate them. This put a lot of abolitionists, though, in a bit of a bind because while they welcomed the end to slavery, many were really offended by this idea that slave slaveholders, rather than the emancipated enslaved people, should be the ones who are paid for this. And that such a transaction legitimized the right of people to own property in the first place. Uh, there's a long history of slave owners being compensated for manumitting their slaves. And so I think all of this is important historical context as we move forward with this national conversation on reparations and who deserves them and who doesn't. And I think to have an honest conversation about it, we have to be clear really about like who has already received them. And as Dr. Hunter points out in a way that I think many people often overlook, when enslaved people were emancipated in D.C., it was the slave owners who got reparations and not the enslaved people. I think on its face, people could view this like, and please forgive the really awful comparison, but I, I heard some people talking about this almost as if it was like a gun buyback program, right? That you are trying to end something that you know is harmful and therefore you're willing to do whatever it takes, including putting money in people's hand for them to relinquish their property. But that undermines the fact that A, people shouldn't have ever been property in the first place, and B, that this payment in many ways operated as an absolution of the sin and the crime of owning people in the first place. And when we think about the model of truth and reconciliation that we saw on display in South Africa, part of the requirement of the people who committed the atrocities 
part of what they had to pay into that truth and reconciliation process is them actually telling the truth, is them actually owning the oppression that they created, that they promoted, that they perpetuated. And so we find that when it comes to not just the enslavement of African people, but frankly, race relations across the um, entire spectrum of American history, we've still not been told the truth. We've not been told the truth by so many people who are purporting to be reporting or teaching the truth. And so we have to think about this as more than just money invested to help in an unjust system. I think that Clint is absolutely right. We need to be thinking about who has already received reparations as we're talking about this. But we also need to be thinking about all of the ways in which that money, irrespective of how much it was, actually supposedly canceled the debt for so many people whose debt has not even been close to being repaid. One of the things that I learned uh, in the past couple weeks was from a study called The Intergenerational Effects of a Large Wealth Shock, White Southerners After the Civil War. Uh, And what they find is that even for those slaveholders who did not get compensated by the government in this way, we saw a massive level of wealth building after the Civil War for folks who owned slaves before the Civil War. And what the researchers find in this study is that folks who owned slaves, white slaveholders, uh, in the 15 years after the Civil War, they were able to leverage their social networks. They were able to leverage really the, the proceeds of whiteness, right? Being able to continue to exist in a society that was still founded in racial inequity and white supremacy. Uh, and leverage those social connections uh, and familial bonds, right? So through marriage and through social networks, uh, to be able to completely rebuild their wealth in a period of 15 years after the Civil War. And then, of course, once they had reconstituted their wealth after the Civil War, those white slaveholders, former slaveholders at that point, then used that social capital and those economic resources, that power, to reimpose Jim Crow and the end of Reconstruction uh, and a racist regime in the South, right? And so, you know, this is a a really important time period to understand and to research because, you know, it is one in which the government not only allowed for the reimposition of a white supremacist state in the South, but also directly enabled it. And we have to recognize that a lot of the wealth, frankly, that people have today um, can be traced back to to this time period when folks who already had money uh, were essentially allowed to, to rebuild and keep that money and extend their influence for generations. One of your recommendations is a Congressional Committee on Reparations. What would that look like to you, and what would you hope that it would achieve? Sure. I mean, one thing I want to start off with is oftentimes, you know, there's more and more conversations around reparations. I think that's a positive thing, but sometimes I think people are confusing inclusive, progressive policy with reparations, right? So, 
guaranteed full employment with a living wage. That's not reparations. That's a progressive policy that would not be racially exclusionary. And that's good. Reparations is something that is a focus on dealing with a historic and contemporary wrong, whether it be with African-Americans or Native Americans. And we don't have one like this is what reparations should be. We believe that there should be a congressional committee that is studying this and is looking in a holistic way. Because I think, you know, we look at most countries that have been serious about reparations. There is some financials, some money allocated to people, but it's also part of a much larger process of investment in institutions, of a recognition of national wrong and how to have these conversations and national landmarks all across the country, the nation coming to terms with the historic wrong so we can move past this inequality. In addition to reparations, we're going to need a progressive economy because even if you recognize what is wrong, even if you give some financial support to some of these communities, if we're in an economy where whenever the economy grows, most of that growth is all being allocated to the top one or top 5%, we are going to actually maintain inequality. So that's why we have reparations and a list of uh, you know progressive policies, because we know we need all of that in order to get past the racial wealth divide. I would also just add, I think one important role of a commission is it's sort of like a truth and reconciliation process. You know, if the white median wealth is 41 times the African-American median wealth, You cannot explain that gap through the typical mythologies of individual effort and deservedness. That is the result of centuries of systemic racism and wealth building. So part of a commission's work is to gather a body of testimony on the racial wealth divide, on that history and how it's affected. And, and, you know, we've had reparations in the United States. Uh, Ronald Reagan signed legislation that provided reparations to Japanese Americans who were interned during World War II. There are examples. And, you know, and Tennessee Coates said, you know, we're sort of in a state of arrested development in understanding the Black Holocaust. Same with understanding uh, Native American genocide. And in order to face that history and pay restitution and heal from that, we have to face it and repair it. And reparations is one of the ways. So I could also see a national commission being part of a national healing process. Are you feeling optimistic about the possibilities for addressing the racial wealth divide that you've spent so much of a career looking at? Yeah, I've never been much of an optimist, but I will say, yeah, no, it feels like it it is actually possible to move forward many of these policies. And I'm just also excited that the racial wealth divide is something that is being regularly discussed in a presidential campaign. In my history, I don't remember so many, at least on the Democratic side, candidates feeling a need to take strong leads on this. So I do think this is a positive development and excited to see where it can go. Mm Mm-hmm. I would just add that we kind of did this before. I mean, after World War II, we taxed ourselves at much more progressive rates, and we invested in things that helped build a white middle class, a number of the things on this list included. So we've kind of done it before, except it was done in a racially exclusionary way. So there's a moment here where big and bold ideas to address inequality are being floated. And it's overdue. I mean, we're four decades into a growing polarization of income and wealth, and everyone knows it now. You know, and it may be that two years from now, we're back into some sort of constraints, or we'll be in some new kind of sense of austerity. But I don't think that changes the importance of pushing these bold ideas forward. 
the alternative is that we move toward an ever-growing economic apartheid society that's not good for anybody. Today's episode is sponsored by a company with a very unique product. Mova Globes are like no other globe you have ever seen. They stand on a small pedestal, and without power cords or batteries, they just silently spin. I mean, if, if you had one of these a couple hundred years ago, you'd have been tried for witchcraft, no doubt about it. Obviously, it's not magic, but it might as well be. They're powered by ambient light internal magnets, and the Earth's magnetic field. And aside from all the amazing science that goes into them, they are beautiful. So as you might imagine, they make a great gift, which is exactly what I did with the one that Mova gave to me. I knew that Amanda's family, which includes nieces and a nephew of ours, uh, would get even more wonder and joy out of it than I would. So I told them to pick out their favorite design, and they settled on the antique map projection from 1790, which shows the world as Captain James Cook thought it was at the time, with Antarctica missing and everything. When those kids are old enough, I'm sure it's going to make a great conversation starter about the golden age of colonialism. If you know someone, maybe even yourself, who would appreciate a truly unique and beautiful globe, then check out Mova Globes. That's M-O-V-A globes.com slash best, and use the coupon code BEST to receive 10% off your order. That's M-O-V-A globes.com slash best, and coupon code BEST for 10% off. We wouldn't even be talking about reparations today if it wasn't for Callie House. In the late 19th century, she helped launch the first mass reparations movement led by African Americans. Callie House was a remarkable woman. I mean, here you have somebody who was a slave, who only went to education in the what we call the uh, elementary grades, you know, K-4, 5. Mother was a washerwoman. And she, in fact, was a washerwoman herself. And yet she ends up having enough vision to start a, a pension movement for old people, like her, you know, the old people who had been slaves at a time when there was no Social Security. Mary Frances Berry is a historian at the University of Pennsylvania and an expert on Callie House. And to do it as a woman... At a time in the late 19th century, women did not run organizations that had men and women in them. This is, she's just um, um, incomprehensible in a way, uh, and so unique, and took so many risks and was so courageous. Did you see anything in her early life or young adulthood that might have shaped her activism? Callie House was sitting in church and heard the preacher and this white man who come through there, Mr. Vaughn, come through and talk about how people ought to join an organization that he had that was going to get pensions for the old ex-slaves. And as she listened to what he said, she thought, this doesn't make any sense because, <laughs> first of all, I don't know how he's going to do that, but if he can do that, then we could just do that for ourselves. <laughs> we don't need him to come around signing up people and collecting dues from them. 
and there was a, uh, a black uh, man who was working with him. She started talking to him about how to do this. So she decided, well, we should just do it ourselves. Why don't we? And she remembered that when she was in school, they read the Constitution. And she said the, Const- the Constitution had something in there about She said, petitioning your government, not petitioning your government. (laughs) (laughs) And therefore, we can petition the government ourselves. Mm. So she asked him, how did they go about doing this? And he said, well, they've sent, uh, they paid members of Congress to introduce bills. They've had lawyers with the dues they collected. And what you do is you ask the Congress whether they will, in fact, give pensions to the old people. And that is how she got started thinking about it. So one of the things that you outline quite compellingly is that in the modern moment, the more contemporary moment, when people talk about reparations, one of the things that they say is that you don't have people who are being compensated who directly experience slavery. So it it makes it very muddy and murky to imagine any kind of compensation that wouldn't go directly to those who suffered the most, you know, profound aggrievements. But you're pointing to a moment in the late 19th century where those, as you describe it, who are literally bearing the welts and the scars of the master's lash are themselves demanding some kind of reparations. And and just give me some sense about what the mass movement that you're describing that Cali House is organizing is looking like. How does the movement itself really begin to pick up steam? Well, she traveled around. By that time, her children were old enough that the older ones could take care of the younger ones because her husband died, so she was able to leave them there. So she traveled around on trains, going places. They collected dues, five cents, uh, uh, whatever people had, and they so they used the money uh, to support uh, this movement and the transportation. The other thing she did, which people very much appreciated, as she traveled around, she had people who could write, sign their names to these petitions. Uh, and the people who couldn't write, somebody else would write it for them. And ev- she said, I'm going to collect the names of everybody who was a slave so that if they ever give us anything, somebody can look back here and see who the people were. There were chapters of this ex-slave pension movement, not just in the South, but there were also chapters in the North. There was a chapter in New York. There were chapters in Ohio. There were chapters uh, out in the black towns. There were chapters everywhere there were any black folk who had been slaves. There were chapters of this uh, of this uh, movement. And so it was uh, nationwide. Now, the Pension Bureau, when it got very concerned about the, what they were doing and all the meetings, they said, uh, you know, we, we have to go and do something about this woman. Because this woman is dangerous. She, uh, she has these, these Negroes thinking that somebody is going to give them something for their work. And we know we're not going to give them anything. <laughs> so what are they going to do when they find out that we're not giving them anything? So we need to stop her in her tracks. Now, the federal government prosecutes Callie House and basically drags her into court. And I'm curious what their argument was in the case against her. Right. It was the most uh, heartbreaking and frivolous argument. And um, they said that uh, we're going to go after her for fraud. We're going to say that, what is the fraud? At At a time when she knew or should have known that the federal government would never give those Negroes anything, 
she went out organizing Negroes to try to get something. <laughs> and so therefore, that's fraud. Uh, she went out organizing people and sending petitions to the Congress and hiring lawyers and arguing in the public forum, uh, the public square, that these Negroes should get a pension. And she should have known that we were never going to give them anything. And so she was misleading these Negroes, and they were gullible. And she might have been trying to make some money out of it because she might have been collecting the dues to make enrich herself. But the fraud was she should have known that the government would never give them anything. And so she shouldn't have been telling them that they should try to get something. And were there specific agencies that were collaborating in this effort? Yes. The Pension Bureau was the agency with its lawyers that were uh, were tracking her and sent the undercover pe- people. And then the Justice Department was the litigation uh, arm of doing this, bringing this litigation. And when they, uh, it was a success of her movement, the fact that it kept growing <laughs> and the letters that they kept getting from these folks in the communities, white folks saying, you know, we don't know what the Negroes are going to do, you know, whatever, whatever, that they decided to go after them because it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And they said, we can't control it. And so they put together this litigation strategy, accused her of that, charged her in the federal district court in uh, Nashville, obviously with an all-white male jury, uh, and they lied to the court. They told the court that she had no chapters, that this was just something she made up, that there really wasn't any organization. She had just pretended she had an organization. Now, the court, of course, convicted her. And on the day that they convicted her, all of these black people came down to the court And the press reported that they were out there singing and crying and lamenting that it was a great, sad display by all the black people who came from miles around to be there to try to support her. And they convicted her and they sent her off to prison in Jefferson City, Missouri, where the women uh, were sent in, in those days. Give me a sense of what's happening to the wider reparations movement while Callie House is incarcerated. And is there any sense at all that there are those who are carrying her banner, even if she might not be on the streets? Well, I found that the movement continued while she was in prison and when she got out. Uh, She was not involved, but it, it continued. When she got out of prison, she was sick. And shortly after that, she died. In some places, the chapters became Garvey chapters, Marcus Garvey chapters, because Marcus mm. Garvey supported reparations. Uh, and in other places, they uh, kept their name uh, in Atlanta, for example. And I have a picture of one of the, the people at the Atlanta chapter. They would collect money and go out and help other poor Negroes as a mission that they kept up while they were there, and other uh, places all around the country where there were chapters. They, they just continued on. You can trace from then all the way up to the uh, modern reparations movement with organizations like Encobra and all mm. the rest of them that exist. You have people who came out of uh, those movements and have simply just perpetuated the, the, the cause uh, since that time. So it didn't die. Uh, as a result of them getting her, it, it, 
inhibited the movement forward, but the movement didn't die. It's an idea that stretches back further even than emancipation. Reparations, an economic settlement to repay African Americans for the labor stolen under slavery. Over the years, the case for reparations, as well as the shape they might take, has changed, as politics have shifted and new injuries have occurred. But at no time in the past century has the idea had as much support as it does now. That's because Democratic presidential candidates have started to add reparations to their platforms, which, I have to say, Neil, is pretty surprising. Why do you think reparations have become an issue in the 2020 campaign? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons why they have. Um, for one, I would just say the rise of Trump uh, has brought certain politics to the fore that I think maybe wouldn't be there, perhaps not be as prominent were he not president. Um, and I think that it's inspired a certain boldness from a lot of Democratic presidential candidates as a way to push back at Trumpism. Um I also think that the Tanahasi Coates piece, uh, the long form piece in the Atlantic that came out in 2014 is a really important part of this story. Um, and if you haven't read that, I would encourage you to do so. We'll link to it in our show notes. But I think that that piece really brought this issue back into the conversation and has made it an ongoing conversation the last couple of years. And then I think also just to come back to the Democrats, I think because of the diversity of the candidate field from the Democrats, um, you know, the most number of women running and the other sorts of diverse candidates who are seeking the Democratic nomination. I think that that's part of this as well. And it also seems significant that a lot of them might be looking to something like this to kind of outflank Bernie Sanders on the left, because Sanders actually isn't a supporter of reparations. Um, so all of those things, I think, are at work here. Yeah, I think to start with the kind of cynical interpretation, um, the outflanking Sanders from the left perspective, um, I mean, not, that's not necessarily cynical, but I think certainly outflanking Sanders on the left on race is a pretty smart strategy because one of the ways that his leftism has been, um, questioned is certainly, um, from the perspective of, you know, uh, racial justice. And so I think that this issue of reparations allows his opponents to take, um, a kind of higher ground on that front in which he is especially weak. Um, weak might be too strong, but where he's not as strong. I do think it's important also, you know, Neil, you mentioned, I think you're absolutely right, that Coates piece, which kind of put what has been a proposal, of course, since the years after the Civil War, but recently has kind of new currency. I think what's really important to notice about that piece, one of the things, is that there's no proposal in there, right? It's not, right. this is the way this would get done, but actually it is meant and most powerful in the way that it makes the case for how widespread the price of slavery has been. That even if your grandparents didn't own enslaved people, like they benefited from a system that expropriated black people. And so in some ways, the work there, it's important to distinguish it from a policy proposal, even though it's sort of tenuously connected to one, mm -hmm. but actually it's, it's more, not quite an academic argument, but certainly a kind of pushing forward a kind of intellectual intellectual paradigm shift. It is an academic argument in a lot of ways, though. I mm -hmm. mean, the case for reparations, which is the piece that we're talking about, it was essentially a historiography essay in a lot of ways, drawing from the work of historians and putting them together in innovative and important ways. 
but making the case for reparations that reparations aren't just about slavery. They're about the economic injustices of the Jim Crow era as well. And the way that wealth was denied and stolen from African Americans, particularly in the area of housing. The mm-hmm. ways that intergenerational wealth in the United States was by and large transferred through housing and because of redlining and other policies, African Americans over the course of much of the 20th century, uh, but especially after World War II, were denied access to the kinds of loans and housing opportunities that white Americans had. And by tying the case to reparations to something beyond slavery, even though slavery is still, of course, part of his argument, Coates is helping not just to update it, but to push back or invalidate the argument that, you know, slavery ended 150 years ago, who are we even who even deserves these reparations? That's exactly right. And I think, um, yeah, housing obviously is a really important one for the 20th century, but education as well plays a role in there too, which, you know, it's tied to housing. But all of that, I mean, the most common, I, I would say the most common facile rejection of reparations is like, get over it. You know, that was 1865. Come on. And this, I think, very convincingly shows that's not, that's not the case. And I think in tracing the origins and the shape of economic injury over the course of hundreds of years, I think that Coates, even though, of course, it's not a policy proposal, does set the stage for an interesting and wide range of policy proposals that reparations can take. Because when we talk about reparations, a lot of people imagine it as a check coming in one time from the government to people of the injured groups. But of course, the the conversation around reparations has been much more expansive than that. Um, back when this piece came out in 2014, Jamel Bowie, who was still a slate at the time, wrote a piece talking about the different kinds of policies that you can enact involving, you know, support and no interest rate loans for housing, um, withholding federal funds from schools that are discriminatory or that don't have uh, racial balance um, because resegregation of schools has become such a pressing problem. It's always been a pressing problem in the U.S., but it continues to be a pressing problem in the United States. And so the idea that there are policy solutions in mm-hmm. addition to just kind of the handing out of uh, of cash, which is also on the table. Right. Well, I think where the variations in policy begin to appear is where this really gets interesting, because you see a real a wide range of policy solutions being put forward. But in those policy solutions are, whether explicit or implicit, um, some sort of expression of what they think the problem is actually that's being addressed. And I think that some of the what I would call kind of smaller proposal s- solutions, a lot of them are suggesting that the work at at hand here is about making America reckon with its past and particularly around a, a wrong, a kind of singular wrong of enslavement. Um, whereas other of the more, I would say, bolder policy solutions, they argue that the, the purpose of this would be a radical readjustment of the American economy to redress, uh, as you said, Nikki, the centuries of economic in- injury and injustice. And so um, I think that it's, as we talk about reparations, one of the things that's really interesting to me is the real wide variations in what different people advocating reparations see as the actual um, problems or injuries that uh, reparations mm-hmm. ought to be addressing. And what the actual 
goal of reparations is, I think exactly. is embedded in that as well. Because if we go to the long history of reparations, right, it traces back to at least to the Civil War and the calls as the as emancipation was being put into action. Uh, the shorthand, right, is 40 acres and a mule. But what that stood for was giving formerly enslaved people economic independence, that the mm-hmm. only way you could have true political independence in the United States, that you could actualize freedom, was by giving some sort of economic independence to African Americans. And they deserved it, right? It was an easy case to make. Their labor had been stolen. Now you can pay back just a fraction of that and give them the ability to build an independent life in the United States. And they were denied that. And in fact, repeatedly denied over the next century or so, any sort mm-hmm. of economic independence for this very same reason so that their labor could be controlled. And that's then the problem that you have to address, wealth and a basis of economic independence. And that makes for a much more complicated set of policy choices, but I think emphasizes how important some sort of redress is. Mm-hmm. Yes, but exactly. But what I think Ta-Nehisi Coates is calling for, or what he says in his piece is that what he believes reparations will bring about is an American reckoning that might generate a spiritual renewal. I mean, that's a really different <laughs> argument than some of these economists are making, which is about the radical transformation of the American economy to give back billions and trillions of dollars that have been stolen from African American peoples for the for their economic redress, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting and perhaps not surprising scholar of religion that that's the spe- that's the phrase that you seized upon in their spiritual <laughs> renewal. But that's exactly the phrase that I was thinking of earlier on in this conversation when I distinguished um Coates's very intellectually kind of historiographical essay from an academic argument because that sort of outcome that he thinks and hopes would come from reparations, spiritual renewal, it's not the kind of thing you read about in the abstract of a, uh, you know, of an academic article. And I think that it speaks to, again, Nikki, something you brought out, the difference between what a even just making a case for reparations part of the public discourse would do that is different from just being cut a check once, which, you know, would never suffice. One, the amounts are too large. Two, they're kind of impossible to calculate in a very precise way. But I think that spiritual renewal could take the form of, and maybe it's starting to, maybe I'm cautiously optimistic, the kind of reiteration and mainstreaming of these articles about the decades of economic injury that African Americans have experienced and the way that policies have reiterated them, the spiritual renewal might come from the fact that it just is no longer tenable or respectable in kind of mainstream political discourse to dismiss this as something as long ago and far away or as a kind of, you know, whining of like far left politically correct um, people who want handouts from the government. And so I do think that that, you know, might be a, a real important kind of outcome of even this conversation being something that's on the on the table for um for political candidates the question is what do we mean by reparations i mean it it, it seems to be a lot of people mean a lot of different things uh, to my mind, it means that we have to deal with the fact that there is enormous disparity uh, between the black community and the white community, and that issue has got to be addressed. And I've indicated to you some of the ways 
that I think it should be addressed. Well, I think they mean uh, some type of economic empowerment to the African descendants of slaves. But what does that mean, economic empowerment? I just talked about the mm-hmm. fact that I would do my best to change the banking system to make sure that we end racism, that we pay attention to distressed communities, that people get the loans they need to make the investments they need. What yeah, about so- free cash payouts? No. How much you want, Sean? agree with that? <laughs> Why don't you agree with that? Well, I, first of all, uh, you mean just a check to every African-American? Yes. Well, then there's a check to every Native American who were nearly wiped out when the settlers first came here. I think the way we go forward is to build America together. There are distressed communities, white communities. There are distressed Latino communities. Right now, what you have is a government owned and controlled by big money interests who worries about Wall Street and the drug companies. We're going to change that, and we're going to pay attention to the needs of working families and low-income families uh, in this country in a way that you have never this is 2016 all over again. Um, you were just listening to Bernie Sanders on The Breakfast Club. There's several clips of Bernie Sanders recently saying that he's opposed to reparations. And this seems to be the standard um, trap that is easily set for him because he holds the line at reparations. And so there's a lot to talk about here. But let me just reiterate, this is 2016 all over again. In 2016, I could not disagree with what ta Coates said in response to Bernie Sanders, the big dreamer. Bernie Sanders, who dreams big on everything and, and is not afraid to push the Overton window to the left on just about any subject except reparations. And for Bernie Sanders to be this dreamer, for Bernie Sanders to be um, the, uh, the person who's willing to stand outside of the American discourse and shout at the top of his lungs until everyone else catches up with him for him to all of a sudden to be extremely pragmatic and sober with regards to the reality of actually implementing reparations in America is extremely disheartening. And I, for one, don't understand why in 2020 now or 2019, uh, Bernie Sanders supporters still don't understand that this is a problem. So my problem in 2016 was that you guys are making Bernie Sanders jump through hoops that you're not making Hillary Clinton jump through because we know Hillary Clinton does not support reparations, right? It was easy in 2016 to, to undercut that argument. You know, if you wanted to, if you wanted to not make a, spe- a case of special pleading and you didn't want to, you know, sacrifice what you believe as a black person, America owes you just in, in order for you to support Bernie Sanders. The logical positioning to hold in 2016 was, well, Hillary Clinton doesn't support it. And furthermore, you guys don't even ask her about it. And so you guys are making Bernie Sanders go through uh, uh, machinations that no one else has to go through. And I think I phrase it and, you know, uh, this is only for black people to repeat. I phrased it as stop making him jump through Negro hoops. Right. That you're not making other people jump through. But. Whereas the political establishment adjusted I can't say they adjusted to my argument because maybe maybe five important people or five establishment people actually listened to the video that Tanahasi Coates retweeted of mine. Maybe. Um, but they sit around all day long thinking about how they can outmaneuver their p- opposition. And that, can I put another pin here? When I talk about things, very rarely do I talk about them from my I mean, my personal passion and my personal stake in it where I'm personally passionate however 
is politics, real politics. You know, especially in domestic politics in particular, like you got to understand the games that are being played around you. And the political establishment sits around in their think tanks, Center for American Progress, which is a misnomer, and they calculate what is the best positioning for us to hold in 2020 in order to hold back Bernie Sanders. And you know what? Instead of them having to just be mum about reparations and only ask Bernie Sanders about reparations like they did in 2016, they rolled out people who now are supportive of reparations, even if it's just kind of uh, um, smoke and mirrors like Julian Castro, who said he's going to appoint a commission in order to to explore it. Man, come on, man. That's that's but he rolled out ta Coates's argument. And he wrote it out, you know, pretty succinctly. And now he gives the appearance that he supports reparations when Bernie Sanders is a firm no. That, my friends, is political evolution, even if it's for political expediency, because you have to be politically expedient at times in order to win. It's just, I mean, so so I only went through that because I want you to understand, like, you know, we can get into the sincerity of the arguments of whether or not I really believe, and I do believe that the American government owes black people. Absolutely. But I don't even have to argue this on the merits of the case for reparations. I'll argue it from the fact that so many people are locked and, you know, locked, keyed in with, uh, with Bernie Sanders that they refuse to criticize him or critique him when he's, not only wrong on the merits, not a, not only wrong on the principle of the thing, but he's also wrong in terms of politics. The political establishment is outmaneuvering and outflanking Bernie Sanders, and it will cause a wedge in the black community. And you're right, if Joe Biden finally decides to seek the nomination, his impressive favorable ratings among blacks will likely implode under the accumulated racist baggage of a lifetime. No white man that declares, quote, I'll be damned if I feel responsible to pay for what happened 300 years ago can be trusted to comprehensively right racial wrongs. Do you think that's enough to sidetrack a presidential cam campaign? How much of an impact do you think policies on race have on who Democrats will pick for their presidential candidate. How much do you think they're really concerned about race? Oh, oh, in the Democratic uh, primary process, race is extremely important. Uh, blacks make up about a quarter of the Democratic uh, Party. Uh, and the question of how Bernie Sanders will fare in his next go-round, in this go-round, uh, has always uh, hinged on how he's going to do with black folks. Uh, Bernie Sanders... Uh, campaign uh, in 2016 was doomed uh, after the Southern primaries because black folks were not, uh, most black folks didn't even know his name. Uh, and uh, the way that black people uh, in the Democratic Party vote in primaries uh, is uh, to hitch, uh, is to throw their support to whichever candidate they feel is best uh, able to defeat 
the candidate of the white man's party, the Republican Party. And certainly they weren't going to support a guy uh, whose uh, name and history they weren't familiar with. But all that is, has changed now. And so the corporate Democrats, uh, knowing that Sanders is definitely the guy to beat this time around, uh, have trotted out two black senators <laughs> in, in hopes uh, that uh, that will upset uh, Sanders. So the black vote is absolutely key, especially to the corporate Democrats who are really depending upon uh, black uh, uh, on on the black vote to to stop Sanders. And that's why Cory and that's why Cory Booker and Kamala Harris are putting forward their non reparations proposals, uh, masquerading as reparations proposals to pander to the black vote. Yet when I see on, I see this a lot on social media, Glenn, and that is that one of the reasons that you shouldn't be supporting supporting Bernie Sanders is uh, for pra- practical and pragmatic and strategic reasons because he just will not garner the African American vote. How do you feel about that? But that's, uh, well, in 2020 or 2019, that's not true. Uh, Sanders is far more uh, popular among black Americans than among white Americans. Well, that's easy to be because half of white America is still uh, with Trump. Uh, but it, it does appear from the polling data uh, that Sanders is doing excellently uh, among black voters now that they know who he is. The black constituency is the most left-leaning constituency in the United States, and especially on bread and butter domestic issues, although also uh, on foreign policy uh, issues. Uh, But they were not familiar with Sanders back in 2016. Now they are. Everybody knows about Medicare uh, for all and uh, free college uh, tuition and and such. So he's polling very well among blacks, uh, despite the fact that there are two black uh, candidates out there. And you're right, Beto O'Rourke, the great corporate hope. Now that uh, Kamal Harris and Cory Booker have failed to catch fire, admits that, quote, as a white man who has had privileges that others could not depend on or take for granted, I've clearly had advantages over the course of my life. Yet you add that Beto rejects reparations for the descendants of slaves. You continue that as far as business-friendly Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar is concerned, the race divide can be bridged simply by, quote, looking out for our whole economy, community college, one-year degrees, minimum wage, child care, making sure that we have that shared dream of opportunity for all Americans. What is missed in understanding what reparations are and what they are meant to be when reparations for slavery are lumped in with all problems of inequality, when they're, when they're conflated with all problems of inequality, when it is argued that everyone of a certain class, no matter their race, no matter if they're descendants of slaves or not, deserve reparations. Well, you know, I think I need to point out uh, that Barack Obama's uh, position on reparations uh, was very much like the other corporatists in the Democratic Party, uh, like the senator from Minnesota uh, and like Beto. Uh, Their position is that a rising tide lifts all boats. But that tide has never lifted the black boat. The black boat's always been uh, swamped and at the bottom of the bay. Uh, and no proposal that that does not uh, uh, bring that boat up from the bottom of the bay in ways that will keep it afloat uh, in the foreseeable uh, for the foreseeable future is a reparations policy. 
You write that in the absence of such a community-wide debate on reparations and black futures, non-black progressives like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, whose Green New Deal resolution displays breathtaking potential for both national transformation and community self-determination, flounders and stutters on reparations. Her instinct is towards solidarity with black Americans, but there can be no authoritative black voice without the great debate. That's the great black reparations debate. What do you mean by there can be no authoritative black voice without the great debate? Well, black folks have to have a consensus among themselves about what the shape and the form of reparations shall be. You know, we, we keep on talking uh, about uh, monetary prices uh, for reparation uh, and, and how much each household or each person is going to get, uh, but it's not been decided that that's the way uh, a reparations program would be uh, carried out. Uh, uh, certainly, if we're calling for a debate uh, among black Americans about reparations, uh, the, ultimate, the ultimate result of that debate would be the formation of representative, uh, representatives of the black uh, community to uh, present those demands uh, and to oversee the implementation of any kind of program. Uh, and it's not... not clear at, or certain at all that any reparations program in the future uh, would involve checks to individuals or to households. Uh, there, there probably would, uh, for a project of this scale, uh, have to be some kind of representative organization uh, that was set up to administer uh, black-specific uh, programs, uh, and that organization would be uh, accountable uh, not just fiduciarily uh, to whoever it got its money from, but to the people who are the beneficiaries of the services uh, that would come from it. So you're talking about uh, the formation uh, of something like a black American governing authority uh, to administer uh, resources that are in the trillions of dollars. This is a very serious affair. And for people to uh, approach it with $500 uh, stipends to go, that go to everybody uh, or stingy $100 billion payouts of $2,500 checks uh, is an insult uh, to, to the ancestors, as many reparations had advocates would say. But I want to say, uh, before we run out of time, uh, that, that the major uh, reparations advocacy organizations in the United States, uh, and those uh, maintain very close, intimate uh, relationships uh, with uh, African-descended people all over the world, including with governments in Africa, because uh, because the victims of of the global uh, of the of the slave trade are scattered around uh, the world and do have a, a common a common imperative to world transformation that will right the wrongs of 500 years of Western European predation around the world. It is the slave trade and colonialism that made Western Europe rich and made the United States an empire and made the rest of the world subordinate and poverty-stricken uh, and in disarray uh, and stigmatized 
as inferior. So a global transformation is necessary. Uh, and I, I have no, uh, no doubt uh, that any reparations solution, any closure in the United States, uh, will not only mean a transformation of U.S. society, it would be also dependent uh, on the overthrow of the order that came from 500 years of Western European predation in the world, and therefore would have to result in a global transformation. And so African nations and Caribbean nations are also seeking forms of reparations, and and we're in solidarity uh, with that. And at the end of of this long political struggle, uh, there will be collaboration among all the uh, reparations-seeking uh, folks around the world. We've just heard clips today, starting with Backstory, explaining the history of 40 acres and a mule. Pod Save the People told the story of owners of enslaved people who were compensated for their loss after emancipation. Tiny Spark discussed plans to reverse economic apartheid in the U.S. and explained the difference between reparations and inclusive progressive policies. Backstory then told the story of Callie House and the beginning of the movement for reparations. Past Present discussed the renewed call for reparations in light of the Democratic primary campaign. The Benjamin Dixon Show explained the cynical view of why many otherwise establishment Democrats are looking to outflank Bernie on the left by advocating for reparations. And finally, we just heard This Is Hell speaking with Glenn Ford from the Black Agenda Report about the purpose of reparations, what they may look like, and why this needs to be seen as a global movement for reparations and transformation to recover from the legacy of colonialism. Members of this week will be hearing an extended discussion on Cali House and the legacy of the mostly forgotten reparations activists, as well as a story about what Georgetown University has done in response to the news from a couple of years ago that the school had owned and sold enslaved people. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now we'll hear from you. Hi, this is Heather from Texas. Uh, I just listened to your episode on reproductive justice, abortion rights. Um, there was one thing that I kind of wanted to point out. I don't. I, someone may have mentioned it, but I may have missed it. I've been, uh, you know, following this discussion and following all the news online, and some people have been talking and brought up some really good points that um, I feel like need to be addressed. Uh, we've kind of been in this. The state of outrage of oh they're not even going to allow abortion in cases of rape and incest as if if they allowed that but banned abortion in any other sense that would be okay um, which it's not it's absolutely not and I don't I don't think anyone on our side thinks it is but we need to watch our wording on this because that might that might give them a sense of compromise like okay maybe we will uh, you know give them this we'll let them have their their legal right to abortion in cases of rape and incest, but it's essentially useless. That is a useless compromise. It's not, 
something that can actually be useful to us because how would that how would that work so we're allowing abortion in cases of rape and incest how are we going to enact that because we can already see that when women just say that they've been raped that's usually not good enough they what they want evidence and so a lot of times maybe there isn't evidence maybe the only evidence is the this child but how would you still prove that it is an actual rape? And then even if they do have the evidence, how long would that take? Would it, would it have to go to trial? Would it have to be a convicted rape before they're allowed abortion? Well, by that time, the child is born. <laughs> the, the pregnancy has gone full term, probably. Um, so that's useless. And then incest, again, you would have to probably prove that it's a, a, a product of incest. You would have to have DNA tests. And how long would that take? I mean, some labs can get it done pretty quickly, but otherwise it could take weeks. You know, if it's a busy lab or if it's something that uh, doesn't get prioritized, it is something that if, if they're at a 17-week pregnancy and it takes three weeks to get results, now it's a 20-week pregnancy and now maybe... That's not something um, that's allowed because I, I don't imagine they would still allow later term abortions. They would still want that that cap on it because then they feel like it's it's a, it's a legitimate child that deserves rights. So anyway, my point I'm rambling. My point is when we say they're not even allowing abortion in, in cases of rape and incest, that is a useless because it wouldn't do anything it wouldn't be helpful it wouldn't be useful at all even if they did allow it because how would we actually have that work anyways that was my point i'm sorry i i rambled a bit um anyways i love the show thank you so much for all that you do i hope to hear another episode on on this abortion issue that we've been having because i mean there's a lot more to talk about a lot more to unpack and um, I, I know that I would deeply love to hear more discussion on it. Anyways, thank you so much. Bye. Hi, Jay. My name is Brandon. I'm calling from Chicago. Um, and I was calling about episode 1279 on impeachment. The reason why I was calling is I've li- li- listened to what you've said. And since Trump has been in office, I've always thought that he should be impeached. But as of recently, I've started to think that he should not be impeached. The reason why is I think right now, if he were were, were to be impeached, it would all be under the guise of civility and it would put a rubber stamp on all previous presidents and and, and their war crimes. I listened to Ta-Nehisi Coates give, give an interview one time and he was talking about whether Obama was a good president or not. And a man went up to him and said he didn't think Obama was a good president and that he refused to buy into that idea on the basis that no president could could, could be good because we are a part of a corrupt institution. And I think...
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who help gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So I'll address both of these voicemails uh, back to back. First, uh, Heather I, I completely cosign everything she's saying, and I have heard that point made. I sort of thought that would have been the sort of thing that would have made it into the show. I, I certainly, you know, I, I don't memorize every comment that, that uh, ends up in the show. And so if, if that was missed, um, the, the sentiment was not uh, skipped on purpose. And, and I uh, certainly do not endorse the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, oh, but they're not even making exceptions and that's the real horror. I mean, I, I think, uh, uh, I, I, you know, I feel like one of the clips that was in there and now that I'm thinking about it, the majority report, Sam Cedar was talking about how the real problem with this whole debate is that there is any level of restriction being placed on it. And, and he went on to make a really powerful case for sort of sidestepping the entire, uh, you know, when life starts argument and moving over to the argument of legal persons, because that's really what we're talking about. Where, you know, the, he, he referred to it as, you know, on one hand, you have God's law and you can decide when God decides, uh, you know, a cluster of cells becomes a human or whatever. But when it comes to American law, we have legal persons and legal persons gain rights and to make an unborn fetus a legal person comes with so many incredibly problematic sort of follow on effects that it makes absolutely no sense to do that. And, uh, yeah. And so I, I guess, uh, I guess that was the clip that, that I, I felt like made the case against all of those, sort of, uh, you know, moderate or making negotiations or, or if, if, if what you're clutching your pearls about is they're not even making exceptions. And if only they would make these exceptions, at least they would seem more compassionate. Like we should bypass that entire discussion. So maybe it wasn't said, uh, you know, completely outright, but yeah, I, th- I think, I think the case for, how incredibly problematic, not to mention misogynistic it is to try to make fetuses legal persons is the argument that bypasses that whole question of what exceptions we should be making because we shouldn't be having a conversation about regulating people's bodies. Secondly, Brandon, unfortunately, as you heard, he got cut off. I have no idea what happened. The, you know, the connection didn't sound bad. You know, sometimes a cell phone connection sounds bad and then it drops and that's not surprising. Um, so, so Brandon, you know, if, if you uh, have more thoughts, please share them, but I, I will go ahead and, and comment on what you said so far, at least. And I, I, I certainly appreciate any argument that brings to light and, you know, reminds people uh, hey, no matter how bad any particular president is, or even how good, you know, relatively good a particular president is, um, we're comparing them to a long line of war criminals and terrible presidents uh, in that they have uh, undoubtedly done terrible things during their tenure, some much worse than others. Bringing that argument 
to then say we shouldn't impeach, I don't think makes sense. And, and here's why. I don't know that the argument would be about civility, as Brandon said, that for the sake of civility, we need to impeach Trump, like as if uh, every other president before was perfectly civil. I, I don't I don't see it playing out that way, but that, that's not my main argument anyway. Um, what I hope would happen with a Trump impeachment is that we may bring to an end the age of impunity we are currently living through, which stretches back at least to Gerald Ford pardoning Richard Nixon, uh, you know, the moment he resigned the presidency and, you know, just got to walk. And I think he wrote a book and made a couple million dollars and lived out his life. Like that started us on the path of, of deciding, uh, as Gerald Ford did, that to prosecute a president who has committed crimes would tear the country apart. It, we're so divided and people would be so angry that it would be catastrophic for the country to do that. And that logic has held throughout the decades since then. So no one has been held to account for almost anything. And if we could impeach one person, maybe the most corrupt president we've had, you know, in a hundred years or more, then maybe we could set ourselves on a new path where we stop thinking, well, no, we just, we think that it's better to just sort of let it go, maybe get them out of office, you know, vote them out, force them out, whatever. Um, but just, we, we don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to make people angry, which of course is code for we don't want to make white men angry. White men being the ones who are the most supportive of Richard Nixon, also the most supportive of Donald Trump. We don't want to rock the boat and make this really powerful uh, white, powerful in a white supremacist country constituency of white men angry. So, so let's just let it go. We need to bring that era to a close. We need to set ourselves on a path where we're not in that mindset anymore. And we could bring ourselves to a new mindset where, hey, we're a country that holds our politicians to account. And so you better watch out. You better watch what you do in office because we are not afraid of holding our politicians to account, as evidenced by that impeachment that just happened. And and that could be the new standard that holds for decades or centuries to come. That would be the hope. So I get the criticism, the the reminder of the long line and legacy of presidents who have committed war crimes and, you know, done other terrible things. But I don't think that's a good argument for, well, if we didn't impeach anyone else, then we shouldn't impeach this one either. Like, I think we've been on a, on a bad path for a long time. As I said, some presidents much worse than others. But this could be our chance to get ourselves on a new path, which we can't even imagine the benefits of doing that. We, we, we can't even uh, think of what disasters may be averted in the future if we create a standard by which presidents in the future have to live and serve, knowing that they are at serious risk. I mean, it's, it's the same argument for why we should have put bankers in jail. Bankers are going to keep putting our economy at systemic risk until they personally start going to jail for it. 
Because if they think, well, the only thing that might happen is my company might have to pay a big fine, they are not going to react to it. When you put people's actual liberty at risk, that's when they start changing their behavior. It goes for bankers, it goes for presidents, and everyone else. If you have thoughts on that or anything else, as always, I'd love to hear them. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.